you'll tune in tomorrow morning at 7 or any time after. It's publishing at 7. And uh, that's, I believe, the sixth episode in the series of side notes, thoughts from a pastor's study, and you'll find it to be very helpful to you. Isaiah chapter 53. This uh, Isaiah chapter 53 could rightly be called a prophetic overview. It's detailed, yet it's panoramic. In other words, it gives a lot of details about the crucifixion of Christ, what happened with that, and the things involved. But it also gives panoramic, it gives an overview of how it, how it fits together. I know some of you have been in our church a while. Perhaps you get almost a little weary of me pointing this out. I don't get weary of hearing it. But this was actually written 750 years before Jesus Christ came to this earth. Now, I'll let that sink in for a minute. Seven and a half centuries before Christ came. Nearly eight centuries before the events on Golgotha, a place called Calvary, Golgotha. This, this was written in detail. God, God did that. Isaiah 53 is an amazing chapter and has some amazing things in it. And uh, we've been dealing with the series, uh, dealing, uh, whom say ye that I am? This is what Christ asked. Who, who do you say I am? Who say ye that I am? Subtitle on it is uh, conclusions about Christ based on biblical evidence. Now tonight we're stepping back, actually stepping back seven and a half centuries to look at what was prophesied about it. There's some things you can conclude by the fact that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that were spoken about him, not just 750 years, but in some places 1,250 and over 1,250, over 2,000 years before he came. Uh, it's interesting. You encounter a lot of things, pastoring and him preaching the gospel for almost 41 years now. You encounter a lot of things. One thing you encounter is the reality that the skeptics' arguments. It's, it's like watching a merry-go-round. Same horse, same horse, same horse, same horse. And, and each, each group, each generation dresses it up and thinks they've discovered something. Same horse, same horse. This morning I ate, ate a late breakfast. I'd started early at the house and such, and then I came here and had a meeting and that, and then I got a late breakfast, and I was studying, and I was working on some things. And sitting over across from me were three men at a table and they were talking about various things had my attention just a little bit on that what they were doing and uh, one of them obviously quite a skeptic about the bible and he's talking to the other two and the other two are just listening to him and he's giving all these great reasons why we should be skeptical about the bible i didn't join into it either <laughs> it just you know why foolish and ignorant questions you know unlearned questions avoid uh, and so that's uh, the, uh, that's what I was doing. And uh, so they were going on, and what amazed me was the fact that uh, it was the same thing I'd heard. And I remember when I was a teenager and first got saved, some of this you know, type of things the guy was talking about kind of set me back. I didn't know what to do with them. Now I look at them and think, that is so silly, it hurts. Well, that biblical evidence is conclusive that Christ is real. You can't sit up there. That whole row is pouting. They heard your truck. Come on down, sit with your folks. Your grandpa's 
peeking around the corner and there's nobody over there to get in trouble with him. Oh, man. Uh, hey, in the night of the unusual, just jump in and enjoy it. That's my, that's my thing, you know. Sort of like when I was whitewater rafting in, in West Virginia, we were going through number six class, classified rapids, number six rated rapids, and they said if you fall out of the raft, don't fight it, stick your feet up so you don't bash your head on things, tuck your arms in so you don't get snagged and, and, and you bring your feet upward so you don't get caught and pulled under and just ride it out. Every now and then in church, when you plan, organize, have things together and things just start going different than what you planned, pick your feet up, pull your arms in, keep your head away from the rocks and just ride that puppy out. And that's kind of what we're going to do tonight because I do know this, we have the Word of God and that's really all we need. And all the rest, all the rest is bonus. But let's look at this thing in Isaiah chapter 53 and... Uh, Appreciate again, appreciate you making it into church and being here tonight very much. Uh, let's pray together and ask the Lord to guide our minds. Would you pray with me as we pray? Would you actually pray and let's ask the Lord to meet with us. Father, thank you for your words. Help them not to be in any way diluted or diverted in their effect because of the speaker. Lord, I want to stay on track with what you want brought forth from this in your Bible tonight. I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah 53, let's look at it. It's and uh, realize it's pointing towards Christ and particularly His crucifixion, not solely His crucifixion, but that's the main point. The questions asked at the beginning, who hath believed our report? Meaning by that is the prophet spoke and spoke by the Spirit of God that the Word was given, that the, they, they gave testimony, but the question was asked, who actually believes it? Um, I know... I ask the same question sometimes in my mind, and it isn't a, uh, oh, it's not a defeatist type thought in my mind the way it comes across, but it's, I started doing this when I was a teenage preacher. I wonder as I preach, even tonight, I wonder who will get it. I wonder who's, who's got their heart tuned towards it. I wonder who uh, was so distracted by either things in the room or things in the day they've had or whatever, maybe not feeling well. It could be any number of things. It's not always honoring us that causes a problem. But I wonder, you know, who, who gets it? You wonder. Anybody who's taught or tried to teach people, you wonder, you wonder who's getting this. Um, if you tried to lead somebody to Christ, I hope you have. If you're a Christian, certainly it's your privilege and responsibility to witness to others. And when you've tried to witness to someone, I think you've thought of, I wonder if they're getting it. I wonder, I wonder if they're getting it or not. So that's the, the, the tenor. That's the, that's the uh, atmosphere of this. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The arm of the Lord referring to His strength. For He, now this immediately goes over and starts prophesying about Christ. Look what it says about Him. Some of this may be a little startling to you when you have it explained. For He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant. In other words, vulnerable. In the weakness of human flesh. And as a root out of a dry ground. Now wait a minute, that's, a, that's an interesting one. That caught my attention when I was a college student. I was studying to preach. As a root out of dry, dry ground. What's that talking about? It's not a place where you would normally expect roots to be springing forth. And so he didn't fit. Of course, in John, we've been in the book of John and that great first chapter. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came into his own and his own received him not. I believe it matches here. Look what else it says. 
He hath no form nor comeliness. Comeliness is outward attractiveness and beauty. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall, <coughs> excuse me, shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. You know, the first king of Israel was a man named Saul. When everybody saw King Saul, they thought, boy, this is a good pick for a king. He was very impressive. He's handsome. And he was so tall that the Bible said he was a full head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel. Many years ago, we had a fellow named Jack Patterson preach here. Brother Patterson is six foot nine. When he was here, he was going at right close to 400 pounds at six foot nine, which means he's not tall and thin and he's very broad shouldered. Um, and there's a picture somewhere in the archives of me and him standing up here together. And he's looking down at me. What else could he do? I'm five foot eight. And uh, so here's a man who has me by 13 inches. And he, what he was saying to me, you can see I'm grinning, he's saying something because the congregation was laughing a little bit. It was visually humorous. And he looked at me and he said, you know they're laughing at you, don't they? Don't you? And that's what he was saying to me on the platform. Well, God willing, maybe even in just a few weeks, I might be preaching on a Sunday morning for the fellow I've mentioned uh, down in uh, uh, Wolf Creek Baptist Church. And Brother Mike down there is six foot nine. Big mountain man looking fella. And these guys are big guys. Now, he's not big, big this way like Patterson uh, is, but he, he's, he's way on up there. And uh, boy, you have somebody like that, you'd see it. You would expect for the Savior of the world to be sort of overpowering in his appearance. Maybe extremely what the world would consider attractive physically, imposing in his stature in the way he does things. That's not what it was. You do remember that those who were coming to uh, take him the night he was betrayed needed, needed him pointed out to make sure they had the right one. Why? Because he was so normal and typical looking that when he was in that dark garden with a group of other Jewish men, there was nothing about him that made him physically stand out. We are so tainted and perverted by what's considered beauty in this world and we are so tainted and perverted by what is of value that we make a lot of decisions about value based on the appearance instead of what really matters. And so it says here, he had no form nor comeliness. I'm at the end of verse 2. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Then what was his condition? He's despised. People don't want anything to do with him. And rejected of men. A man of sorrows. He knew what it was like to hurt. And part of the reason was because he entered into the hurt of other people. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That term acquainted caught my attention because that, that implies that it was a choice to make that acquaintance. It's an older saying. He's saying, glad to make your acquaintance person's not your friend yet, but you've went out of your way to meet them. He was acquainted with grief. The word grief, we tend to think of it in one dimension. Like we're grieving over the loss of somebody or something. 
But grief is a broader word. Grief deals with any sort of malady. Malady being something that befalls us. It's a problem. It's hurtful, ill. It could be uh, physical problems. It could be uh, emotional things going on. It could be any manner of things. But he was acquainted with grief. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like. He, uh, he took upon himself the form of a servant and he knows this thing. Uh, and it says, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The word esteem means we didn't count him with value. But that thing hid in his face, it's like this. I suppose Caleb had a real need and I could see that he had some sort of need, right? Going on. And I knew it and I could see it and I just turned away. Act like he didn't see it. Like, like it's not there. Maybe your mind goes to the uh, account in the Bible of the Good Samaritan and what the Levite the priest did. Seeing this man who had been robbed and wounded and left halfway dead, they went to the other side of the road so they didn't have to get involved. And that's what we hit our face. In other words, Christ was, Christ was treated wrongly and we just said, oh, well, I won't be a part of that. Let me say to you, those of you who are believers tonight, don't ever be ashamed of your Lord. I wish I had the boldness each time to do what I did one time because I think the Lord's worthy of it. I was at the Speedway gas station on 33 and I was on one side of the pump there putting fuel in the car and they had their advertisement thing up so you couldn't really see the person on the other side. A fellow got out and he's muttering around and Apparently the machine wasn't doing something he wanted, and he began just cussing and throwing himself a fit on the other side of the pump for a minute. And I was just the first one, like, oh, that's pleasant. But then he just kept using the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as, as the swear word. I didn't bother. I'm not going to do with this. You know. I'm kind of guy, if I don't attack it, I feel like I'm compromised. <laughs> and so. I thought, huh, get an idea. So he once again took the Lord's name in vain. And I thought myself, I wish I, I wish I was a spiritual every day. I this loud. I said, I love him. I love him. <laughs> Repeat the sounding joy. And the fellow just stopped. He goes, What? I said, I love him. I said, You're talking about Jesus. I love him. He literally, I could look, and then I looked between the little thing there. He went like this. I could have went away. He just bring me the gasoline, you know what I mean? He got quiet on the other side of the phone. He said, what about times when you haven't had victory? You silly thing. Why would you tell those times? <laughs> but, but what I'm saying to you is, our God's always worthy of that kind of loyalty. You don't have to be as outspoken as I am about things and stuff like that. And I'm not always out, as outspoken as I am. But it is, a, it, is a, it is a good thing not to be ashamed of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That's in Romans 1, isn't it? For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, if we're not to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, how much more important is it that we're not ashamed of the Christ of the gospel? And so here, though, it points out exactly what would happen. It says he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised 
And we esteemed Him not. We did not count Him of value. Our God deserves more than that. Surely, He hath borne our griefs. It's the idea of taking the weight of it upon yourself. He bore our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him. In other words, what we counted Him as, we esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And there were even some of the uh, disciples who during the confusion of the immediate time of the crucifixion and immediately afterwards were that way. You think about the two men that were going on the road to the little town village of Emmaus. When Jesus came up and they didn't recognize Him, He was resurrected. He had risen from the grave. He comes up and starts walking beside Him. The Bible says their eyes were holding that they would not know who He was. They didn't recognize Him. And he asked him, he said, what means of communications are these that you have as you walk together and are sad? They said, art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? Knowest not the things that have come to pass? And he said, what things? They said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. We count him to be a prophet. Then they said, we had thought it would be he that would redeem Israel. What they do? They said, they said we don't understand. They said, by the way, this is three days ago. And, and, and some, of our, some of our women said that they saw him raised from the dead. And God, everybody made us astonished. And they said, we don't even know what to believe. They were confused. They were afraid. And you know what they did? They said, he's stricken. Smitten of God and afflicted. You know, there's an aspect sometimes of um, the unbelieving mind and heart that despises what they think to be the weakness of Christ. What they're looking for is this bold world leader who can conquer everything and who can do all this. And that's what they're looking for. By the way, it's why they're going to be right for Antichrist. Exactly why they'll fall in line with one world government. God is and has always been against globalism. And so, uh, by the way, if you want to do a study on socialism, it first shows up in your Bible at the Tower of Babel. That's the first instance of what's called socialism in today's political world. God's against it. Why? Because it elevates mankind and deifies him. And basically it's mankind getting together saying we don't need God. It always ends in abject disaster, usually in genocide. If you don't like that, I'm sorry. We'll have to turn history off and change it to fit your particular ideology. Um, but that's the way it works. And so what happens is with... Christ, He came and, and they said, look at Him. He's stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. They said, my goodness, here, why is He like that? Well, he was, he was bearing our grief. He was carrying our sorrows. Um, he felt our weight. You realize Christ never sinned? It's hard to even comprehend, isn't it? Because we can't think that way. None of us are that way. None of us are sinners. Yet Christ was sinless. And then he was butchered and died just as if he had been the most vile sinner that ever lived. Why? He was stepping in our place. As I've taught you many times, Christ was not a martyr, he was a sacrifice. A martyr is willing to lay down their life rather than to 
give up what they believe. By the way, someone who goes and destroys other people in the name of religion is not a martyr. They're a murderer. A martyr is somebody, rather than renounce their faith, would be killed for it. They would, they would if they're pushed all the way to the corner and told, and it's happened countless millions of times in our history, you either renounce the name of Christ, reject him, or you're dead. They say, I'm not going to deny Christ. Um, that's a martyr. Someone died. The word martyrios means a witness. Well, Christ was a faithful witness, but he wasn't a martyr. He was a sacrifice. Sacrifice is one who actually pays the price for another, who goes in place of the other. In other words, it's not that Jesus did this great thing and so he's a, just a great example for us and someone we should follow and try to make our life like his. No, he literally went in our place. It was literally our iniquity that hung him on the cross. It was literally our sins that caused him to be, be butchered the way he was. That's a love beyond what I have a comprehension of. I love my wife dearly. We've been married 34 years. We raised each other from high school days till now. She's done a reasonable job of trying to domesticate me. But I love her dearly. Love my, love my family. Love my boys, love my grandkids. Let me tell you something. With that love and with the love, I think in any situation, if I would, it would be instinctive instinctive to give my life for them if that had to be. I think it would be instinctive. I've never been in that position, but I think it would be. But what about for someone who's not been so close? How about with someone who at some point has been my avowed enemy and has sought to hurt me? Love of Christ is that he gave himself for those of us who were against him. It's a sad remorse of mine. I remember a friend of mine named Aaron inviting me to go to church with him. And I don't know why. I wasn't raised this way. And it really wasn't my nature as a, as, as a child to be. I wasn't a bully type kid. I didn't, I didn't go after people. But I, I don't know why that day. I remember where it was. Just, just outside. And it was in the edge of Gratis, Ohio. They were going down this little hill by the, what used to be the old elementary school. And he said, you're going to come to church with us. He'd been nominated to it. They went, his family went to church. He knew I didn't go to church. And I said, no. And he's like, I said, I'm not interested in going. He said, again, I remember I punched him right in the nose, man. And he fell down. <laughs> punched him in the nose for inviting me to church. Man, I tell you what, I'm kind of afraid of the law of sowing and reaping. <laughs> one of these days, somebody's going to hit me right on the snocker one of these days. But I'm getting too old for that nonsense. The, he said, why would you do that? Why would I do that? Because I was lost without hope and without God in this world. And uh, Christ loved me enough to die for me. I don't know. It's just amazing to me. You know? <laughs> he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Verse 5, But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes, and by that way, that stripes, His idea of the back being laid open by a whip. His idea of being hit so hard it busts the skin open. By His stripes we are healed. Now the next verse is indicting. All we like sheep. All of us. All we like sheep have gone astray. How do we do it? 
We have turned everyone unto his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, cumulatively, each of us individually and together. This idea of going our own way is no regard for what God wants. There have been some very famous songs in secular music that have been built on this premise of, of just do things your own way. I'm not going to take your mind down certain avenues. I would say uh, I would say roadways, but it's more like a dark, smelly alley. So I won't go down it. But songs that have just basically fostered the spirit of you just do whatever you want. My life, I'll do whatever I want with it. It's my future, I'll do whatever I want. It's my business. And especially for someone who names the name of being Christian to talk that way, you don't know what spirit you're of. You don't know what spirit you're of. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which you have with God and you're not your own? You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This is what we're supposed to do. Look what it says. Let's continue in Isaiah 53. And so, He, he bore our iniquity of us all. Verse 7, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth when He was taken in before Pontius Pilate and, and, and He was put on trial. He wouldn't defend Himself. In fact, it's interesting. Really, the only declarative statement he made to that Roman governor at all, and here he is, knowing that the people are wanting to crucify him, which is just a horribly brutal death. And Pontius Pilate's asking questions, and Jesus will not answer him. He won't say anything. And Pilate finally says, Answer something, nothing. He says, Has, Dost thou not know that I have, I have authority to kill thee, keep thee alive? And all Jesus said to him, he said, you have no power at all except it was given you from above. Scared the fire out of that Roman governor. And Jesus didn't bad eyes. just like, you have no power at all unless it's given to you. And uh, he opened not his mouth. Why? He didn't come to defend himself. <laughs> we can't have somebody say one little syllable about us that's wrong without feeling like we defend ourselves. By the way, let me just drop something in here because it needs dropped in. First of all, I've never seen anybody healthy, healthier mentally or spiritually because they mess around with social medias. I've never seen anybody's spirituality go up because of it. Amen, preacher. Thank you for saying that. You're welcome. I love you. That's why I tell you. Second thing is, you get into these mudslinging dogfights, you're, you're breaking several commands in the Scripture, and it's ungodly. Well, somebody posted something about me. You know the best way in the world not to know that is not paying attention to them? Well, they said something. You know what? I've had chihuahuas bark at me too. I don't kick everyone I see. Amen. Honest to goodness, some of y'all, you're wasting so much of your life. You got this little stinking chihuahua out here going, and you're spending your whole life, hush up, go bark at me, hush up. I will prove. Well, don't ruin my reputation. You probably don't have one. Just get over it and live right. And by the way, unfortunately, some of you are far more likely to ruin your reputation by what you post and what you associate with and what you say you like. 
So let's get real, okay? Hey, God's coming back. God's coming back. You're going to stand before it. If you're lost, you're going to hell. If you're saved and you're not following Him, you're going to face His wrath over it. He's coming back. Playtime's over. Let's get real about this stuff. The God who said that He knows every idle word that we speak, you think He doesn't know what you're doing? You ought to read sometime in the Old Testament about, the, about what they called the chambers of imagery. The Old Testament, here's what they did. Here's how perverted they got. In the temple, the big old temple building. The old temple, not Herod's temple. They had walls and you had space between the walls. And the prophet was told to go dig in the wall. He said, there's, God said, there's something going on in there you need to see. And here's what he found. He found the elders, those who should be teaching the Bible, and he found those who were supposed to be in spiritual leadership, they were sacrificing to heathen gods and they were committing abominations right there at the temple. And the Bible calls it the chambers of their imagery. It's the exact same word that imagination comes from. And they went to a place that was dark and the Bible says that they say no one sees us and they did it when it was hidden, maybe when everyone else is asleep. They could cover their tracks and erase things. And they said, no one sees it. And they were back there. And God says, not only do I see it, but I'm sending the prophet to kick your wall in. Well, this is the kind of garbage that Christ came to release us from. Yeah, the Bible says he that committed sin is a servant of sin. How many, of you, how many of you know somebody who's a drunkard? You may call them an alcoholic, but they're a drunkard. That's a sad shape, isn't it? Been a lot of them in my family. My family has a certain uh, genetic proclivity towards it, I believe, because we also have a tendency towards low blood sugar. I hate to think, in the days before I knew the Lord, of you know, wrestling and all the different things we used to do, school dances and all the nonsense, I'd hate to think, what happened if I never messed with booze? And God was just so gracious to me. It wasn't because I had good sense. Maybe I had a little bit of good sense. My mama taught me not to follow the crowd. One of the best things I've ever taught. But I remember being booze. Hey, man, take some, take some. You know, there's an old saying. It says, at first the man takes the drink, then the drink takes the man. That's a sad condition, isn't it? I'm not going to ask you who they are or anything like that. Anybody know somebody's drugs got a hold of them and they've been on and off and on and on. It hurts them. I've seen it in my own family. As a teenager, I remember carrying one of my loved ones out of a drug party over my shoulder trying to get them out of the nonsense. We've seen it happen. But see, that's what sin does. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So there's an appetite for something. Lust, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth sin. And sin, and here's the key, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. There is a time period before it's finished. And during that time, the Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. That's why, see, see, people get sucked in not only by their own sin, but by what they think is the successful sinning of other people. 
they see somebody and they go out and do this thing. Well, they're doing good and they got a good job. Seems like they're happy and all this. Nothing bad happened. No, here, here's the saying. Okay, here's the saying. I, I heard this this week. Well, no lightning bolt came down from heaven and hit them. Seriously, are you an idiot? Really, seriously? Do you not even know what's inside that Bible at all? You show me somewhere where it's in the Bible. If thou dost sin, thou shalt be zapped. It's not there. I'm talking just very plain to you tonight. Spiritual warfare. I can't feel like I'm street fighting this evening. But I want to tell you something. This is what Christ came to set us free from. Just for pride alone is big enough chain on us. You know, I really don't have a bunch of time. I'll warn people about sin. I'll warn you because I love you. I don't want to see you hurt by it. I don't want to see you damaged by it. <coughs> Let me tell you something. I'm really in a point in my life. I just find myself standing back and being amazed that God not only loves me, but that he would use me, that I can serve him. I think of where I could be. I think of things I know. I think of, I think about how many of the people we were in high school with and what happened in their lives and what went on. And not sitting and looking down at them. I'm just saying, thank God. I look back at it and I'm like, the, that's old songwriter was that, that old slave trader, wicked man, so wicked that the slave traders didn't want anything to do with him. Old fellow named John Newton got saved by the grace of God, pastored the church, and wrote a song all over you of son one time or another, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Why? Because he was so far degraded that had nothing to do with him as he trafficked in human souls. Let me tell you something. I, I just step back and say, thank God I am free, free, free from this world of sin. And I'm amazed. Not only that God saved me back in 1980 that He saved me as a 15-year-old boy, but I'm amazed that He's been so kind to me since then. When I have transgressed against Him, when I knew better, when I knew the Bible, it was one thing when I was ignorant of the Scripture, but to know the Scripture and have the Holy Spirit living inside and still transgress against my God, and He doesn't throw me away, but He chastises, He convicts, He restores helps. That's what this chapter was about. Hanging on that cross with the bones out of joint because of the pressures that are involved with the crucifixion. Psalm 22 starts out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me 1,250 years before Christ was on the cross? Why art thou so far from the words of my roaring? I may tell all my bones they stare at me. He was filleted open. Why? Don't ever be ashamed of Jesus Christ. I know there's a lot of people who do idiotic things in the name of religion, but that's not your business or mine. I know there's a lot of hypocrites. Yeah, you'll slam into them at Walmart too. So what? I'm not talking about what people do. Man, if you ever get a hold of this thing and, and, and learn, as Paul said, these things I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos, that you might learn in us not to think of men about that which is written. When you realize that you can thank God for what people do that's right, that you can thank God that people do love the Lord, and if you would quit expecting of your brothers and sisters in Christ and quit expecting of your family members that if they really love Jesus, they do everything right, you would live a whole lot better for the Lord. Get concerned about your walk. 
Get concerned about your heart condition. You don't answer for anybody else. And by the way, God will help you individually. Because He loves you individually. He was bruised for our iniquity. Chastisement of our peace was upon Him. <laughs> then let's finish out. Verse 8, He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare His generation? For He was cut off out of the land of the living. You say, why does it say cut off? He's about 33 years of age. He was crucified. That would seem right in the prime of life, wouldn't it? But He fulfilled His purpose. For the transgression of my people was He stricken. And He made His grave with the wicked and with the rich in His death. Exactly, a borrowed tomb from a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. He never lied, and he never misled people. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. It wasn't just his body that was given. He was pierced through. This is God the Creator in human form looking at creation that He made to walk with Him and seeing the degradation of their condition. Seeing how badly they had fallen. My mom used to say something to me. Somebody would get messed up, something going on, and she'd say, Honey, that was somebody's baby. That was somebody's baby boy. That was somebody's baby girl. There was a time when their eyes were bright, they were innocent. All that mess you've seen is what sin does. Boy, that was good advice she gave. May God help me to look at things like that better. I need Him to look at things like that better. Too much of me gets in the way. I'm just honest with you, just too much of me gets in the way. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant Justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. He went between us and the judgment of God. Judgment of God was coming at us full on. And he stepped between us and it. Let me pray with you. Lord, thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you for preserving this passage down through the centuries that we could learn about you. Have I spoken in the years tonight, Lord, of one who doesn't know you as their Savior? Would you give them conviction even as you did me so many years ago? Show them their need. Show them that you love them. Lord, I ask you for your people. 
that they would have a heart for you, not be ashamed of you, and love you and consider you first in their decisions they make. Bless this invitation time, please. Let's stand together.